Hello everyone, welcome, welcome. It's great to have you all here with us um, for the launch of MEDAC's newest briefing, the public health case against the policing bill. Um, I'm Sarah, I'm the campaigns officer at MEDAC. Um, my pronouns are she and her, and I'll be facilitating tonight's launch. Um, firstly, for those of you who are unfamiliar with MEDAC's work, uh, we are a UK-based charity for global health um, working on issues related to peace and security, climate and the environment, economic justice and human rights. And this evening is a launch event for our newest briefing, uh, which is available online as of a few hours ago, um, which has been developed and written by members of the MEDACT Research Network or MRN um, to explicitly explain why the measures proposed in the Police, Crime, Sentencing and Courts Bill or the Policing Bill as we'll refer to it will actively harm public health and further entrench discrimination. As I'm sure most of you, if not all of you are already aware, um, despite widespread resistance, mass mobilizations, um, and major criticism from across sectors, the policing bill is currently continuing its progression through parliament. Um, and so with this new briefing, we aim to articulate and amplify radical public health voices against the policing bill's approach and begin to explore the alternatives. So this evening's launch is in roughly three parts. Um, we'll first hear from three of the briefing's co-authors who present an outline of their work. Uh, we'll then hear from each of our four brilliant guest speakers, um, Kavian Kalasabhanathan, Lola Olufemi, Chelsea McDonough and Kelsey Mohammed, who will all share ten, a 10 minute response to the briefing. And finally, we'll open up to Q&A discussion for the last half hour of the event. Um, so please do think through questions that come up um, as all of our speakers are presenting. And yeah, we'll delve into a really great discussion, hopefully. Finally, finally, before we begin, um, I'll just speed through a few bits of housekeeping. So first of all, feel free to either have your camera on or off, um, but please stay muted throughout the event if you can. Um, this event is being recorded and will be available to watch back on our YouTube channel. Um, so staying on mute will help us keep the audio as pristine as possible. Um, if you have a question for our speakers, like I said before, um, please do send them to our host, TJ, who is, um, I think you can find them in the chat and just privately message tech TJ. Um, TJ is fielding all of the questions for our Q&A portion. And so please send them their way. Um, also, if you have any other tech issues that come up throughout the event, you can message TJ directly too, or send an email if you can't actually use the chat and that is your problem, um, to tech at medact.org. And finally, finally, when taking part in MEDACT activities, whether online or in person, um, we just expect everyone to take an active role in creating a really respectful, understanding and kind space. So we won't tolerate any harmful, oppressive or abusive behavior or language in this event or any other. Um, if you're tweeting about tonight's event, please use hashtag kill the bill, where all of the kind of like mobilization around the policing bill can be found. And also tag us if you can too, we're just at MEDACT on Twitter. Um, perfect, so that's everything. Um, without further ado, I'll go into the introduction of our three incredible co-authors who are representing um, the members of the MEDACT Research Network who have put together this briefing and written it. Um, so we have Dr. Munza Blell, who is an academic writer and community organizer. 
we've got Rebecca Chun-Judge, who is a member of the MRN, a coordinating member of MEDAC's Race and Health Justice Group as well. And she's a junior doctor with clinical and research experience focused on the health of people experiencing homelessness and imprisonment. And finally, we have Jordan Wondrak Zaidi as well. Jordan is a medical anthropology PhD candidate studying how Islamophobia affects health for Muslims in the UK. Um, and in addition to the research network, She's a part of MEDAC's Securitization of Health Group and has participated in the alternative trainings on preventing healthcare, which MEDAC coordinate as well. Um, so I'll hand over to all of those speakers and then we will delve into the reflections from our four guest speakers following that. Hello, um, my name is Rebecca and my pronouns are she, her. Um, as Sarah said, I'm a junior doctor working in London and a member of the MEDAC Research Network. I'm really grateful to be able to share this space with you all. Thank you so much for being with us here tonight. I'm here today to listen and learn from you and with you. I'm not a public health expert by any means, and I'm in a process of ongoing learning and reflection about the issues we are discussing tonight. I've just been asked to share a little about the briefing itself and reflect from my position as a doctor. Thank you so much to Carvey and Lola, Chelsea and Kelsey for giving your time, energy and experience to be with us tonight. And on behalf of the whole team, I also want to give a massive shout out to Hill, who led this work so brilliantly, Sarah, Rosie and the whole MEDAC team who made this briefing and launch possible, not to mention the Race and Health Collective, especially Abby and Sarah, for their formative work and guidance. We, as a group grounded in different spaces, healthcare anthropology, activism, and public health, came together to write this briefing in response to the PCSC bill. Although it is moving towards passing, we wanted to challenge the claim that it takes a public health approach and examine it and policing more broadly through the lens of health. We wanted to use our voices to amplify the voices of our allies, both current and past. We want to acknowledge the many years of expertise about and embodied experience of police and state violence, as well as the many years of grassroots resistance against it, including the powerful organizing many are doing now. And we really want to encourage healthcare workers to stand in solidarity with targeted communities and join those organizing for abolition. So moving to the briefing, um, as you know, the PCSC bill is just the latest in a long line of policies which expand police powers. The UK government has co-opted the language of public health to win support for the bill when it will in fact harm health. By its reliance on policing, prisons and criminalisation, it tackles symptoms, not causes, and therefore leads to punishment, not prevention. Additionally and inherently, an expansion in police powers is racist and discriminatory. Like its predecessors, it spins a false and racist narrative which positions racialised others close to violent criminality creating a threat of crime in an attempt to justify its approaches. We are deeply concerned that the measures proposed by the bill through the means we will outline will further entrench discrimination and worsen inequality. To quote from the briefing, the bill inflicts violence towards communities who as a function of their oppression already experience worse health outcomes. Therefore, as healthcare workers, we must resist it. In the briefing, we discuss why policing is a threat to public health. We focus specifically on the bill's serious violence reduction orders, which expand stop and search powers. Stop and search has been shown, as you know, time and time again to target young black men and harm physical and mental health through the trauma caused by over surveillance, 
structural racism and criminalization and through direct police violence. Therefore, we are concerned that SRVOs will exacerbate a cycle of criminalization, discrimination and harm. Additionally, we talk briefly more broadly about the function and impacts of policing on health and how policing produces the structural violence which lies at the root of both crime and health inequality, creating, to quote Carvian, a cycle of community harm by criminalizing the conditions it reproduces. Furthermore, as you know, the bill clamps down on protest. Protest, in the words of Dr. Rhea Boyd, constitutes a profound public health intervention, allowing communities to address inequalities at the root of health problems. It is also a means by which those who are silenced, often those experiencing the most harm, can have a voice. Therefore, the bill's restrictions on the right to protest will have a harmful impact on public health. In healthcare, we see and experience the impacts of multi-generational lifelong violence, disease and death caused by policing, criminalization and structural racism on the body. I see this in too many ways to name in the patients I meet. And I see this in the patients I don't get to meet, in the absence of such. All the people who do not make it into caring spaces because of imprisonment, the hostile environment and policing. The person who missed their clinic appointment because they were imprisoned. The man who was admitted with incurable cancer because he was afraid when his symptoms started to seek healthcare for fear of being detained or deported. And the person I never meet at all because state violence subjected them to premature death. And I see our complicity in policing, in our carceral responses to addiction and mental health distress. The woman in mental health crisis who as she was sectioned repeatedly told me, you're destroying my life. Words I know to be true and yet for whom I had no better, safer or more caring alternative. I see it in the way we share information with the police on ad hoc conversations and through organized programs such as Prevent. And I see it in our failure to consistently listen to, advocate for, build trust with and make healthcare spaces accessible to over police communities. As we as healthcare workers see and feel the harms of policing on health, we have a duty to listen and learn from those experiencing structural and state violence, to reflect on how we can resist and renew in the spaces we operate and stand in solidarity with those organizing to create conditions in which all can thrive. I'm now going to pass over to Jordan and then Wenza, who will take you through the other sections of the briefing. Hello, I'm Jordan. I'm uh, my pronouns are she, hers, and I'm present. I'm presenting um, on serious violence and confidentiality. And thanks so much to Becca for her amazing analysis so far. So the section on serious violence and confidentiality is uh, particularly troubling for us. Public health literature on violence reduction is extremely clear. It shows that inequality is conducive to violence. We argue that the policing bill in fact increases inequality. So it bolsters the factors contributing to violence. Therefore, a true public health approach would be preventive and should operate at the individual and the societal level, taking structural violence into account and not relying on punitive responses. We critique these responses and we argue that punishment is reactive and public health is preventive. The bill's flagship serious violence duty makes it a statutory duty for healthcare providers 
and other public bodies to share information on patients perceived to be at risk of serious violence. And this applies to both perpetrators and victims. This overrides data protections and legal and professional duties of confidentiality, increasing existing mistrust of health providers. And this disruption of access to care is not a public health approach. Hi, I'm Wenza. My pronouns are she and her. Um, I'm gonna talk a little bit about the sentencing in prisons part. In summary, the UK already imprisons large numbers of people for increasingly long periods of time. We have the highest imprisonment rate in Western Europe, and for 20 years, we've been increasing the lengths of custodial sentences. And this bill aims to make that record even worse. It's clear from the evidence that prison harms the health both of the individuals in prisons and the health of minoritized and marginalized communities from which they are disproportionately taken. Communities already disadvantaged by health inequalities. Prisoners, for example, have a 50% higher mortality rate than those not incarcerated. And specifically, it's very clear that prison affects mental health in devastating ways. Self-harm and suicide rates have been increasing in UK prisons to alarming levels. Given all this, we simply ask, how can sending more people to spend longer periods of time in prison be considered a benefit to public health? Next slide, please. Speaking of marginalized groups, the bill directly threatens the safety of gypsy, Roma, and traveler groups. Of course, it's not one group of people, but these groups tend to share experiences of oppression, experiences that are inextricable from health inequalities, and experiences with this, which this bill would um, further entrench. There's a long history of pervasive racism towards and persecution of gypsy, Roma, and traveler communities in the UK and in Europe more broadly. Local authorities in the UK have for many years failed to provide sufficient space on which gypsy, Roma, and traveler groups can legally live. And this bill takes that discrimination further by criminalizing nomadic lifestyles. It effectively empowers police to make people homeless as well. Making Gypsy, Roma, and Traveler people face increased housing insecurity and criminalization of their very lives will compound socioeconomic marginalization that in itself is a threat to health, as well as increasing institutional mistrust, which is a major barrier to healthcare access within minoritized communities and the Gypsy, Roma, and Traveler communities specifically. Thanks. Thank you so much for that presentation, everyone. Um, I think that was a really robust and great overview of what the briefing itself delves really well into. So I encourage everyone following this event to go away and, and give it a full read. Um, and now we're gonna delve into our speaker contributions. So first off, we're going to hear from Kavian. Kavian is a paediatric A&E doctor and researcher at the University of Oxford. His interests span socio-political determinants of health, particularly pertaining to race and class, alongside community-centered models of care. Kavian organizes with the People's Health Movement UK and the Race and Health Collective. So Kavian, I'll hand over to you. Thanks so much, Sarah. Um, 
Yeah, so yeah, my, my name's Carvian, pronouns he, him. Uh, thanks thanks so much to, to all of you guys. The, the briefing is, is obviously super timely and urgent and it looks really brilliant. So so shout out to, to, to everyone that worked on it. Um, yeah, I just, I, I guess I want to start off by really echoing what's been said already. And in particular, I want to kind of acknowledge that we're standing on the shoulders of, of really incredible thinkers and organisers, both in the UK and beyond. And we're, we're really building on kind of ancestral and intergenerational wisdom that's existed for a long time. And maybe we're only just eliciting now. Um, I guess just to reflect on where I'm coming from, I'm also very new to this space and I only really explicitly came to the, the now clear to me intersection of abolition and health in the last year, uh, hugely accelerated by the work of my friends at Race and Health uh, in particular, that the BMJ Global Health article that I would highly recommend everyone read. Um, yeah, shout out Abby, Sarah, James, Serge. Um, and, and yeah, I'm, I'm mad excited to, to share this space with all of you guys and, and, and the other panelists. So I'm going to try and keep it relatively brief, but I kind of wanted to take us on a bit of a journey uh, through my eyes, I suppose, from the point of departure as a healthcare professional um, on, on starting with why we care about health, how the causes of the causes um, of both poor health and criminalized behaviors overlap in a, in a really mutually reinforcing way that the state perpetuates intentionally. Um, where the policing bill fits into all of this, and finally, what I think we as healthcare workers should and can be doing. Um, so the only way that really made sense for me to do this is by taking us back to first principles with a question that I think is, is fundamental to our practice, but maybe we don't ask quite explicitly often enough, which is why is health important? Um, leaning heavily on the work of, of Sridhar Venkatapuram, we, are, I mean, we all strive to flourish, to reach our full potential. I'd argue this is a fundamental right. Health is a, is a necessary prerequisite for us to be able to flourish like this. And I think it's you know, both intrinsically and instrumentally valuable to all of us to be free from suffering, uh, free from pain, from poor mental health. And obviously, whilst individualized behaviors and actions influence health, for healthy choices to be made that can enable this capability to flourish, we must make these choices possible in the first place. Ultimately, this means understanding and addressing the social, commercial, political determinants of health, you know, access to housing, green spaces in the built environment, good nutrition, and, and going one step further, actually also understanding the architecture of colonial thinking, white supremacy, cis-heteropatriarchy that uh, affect these conditions. So why am I telling you all this? You're, you're, you're here to obviously uh, <laughs> see why the PCSE bill is a threat to public health, right? Um, well, all of these determinants are also intimately linked to criminalized behaviors. The lack of basic conditions needed to flourish pushes people into crimes of desperation, really. It's these same conditions that, that drive bad health, as, as we've discussed. And, and instead of addressing those conditions, the state proceeds to criminalize them, reproducing these conditions and, and really creating a cycle where through racist police and prisons, uh, ultimately overall more, much more harm is done rather than less. As, uh, as Sarah introduced, I'm a doctor in children's and before that adults A&E. 
And I've seen countless children, teenagers, adults involved, whether on the receiving or perpetrating end, trying to really sit with the, the moving beyond the binary between victim and perpetrator, but we can kind of come back to that later on. Um, and, and I see, you know, lots of these people across the age spectrum uh, involved in what would be termed violent crime. Uh, you know, those involving knives, guns, dealing with class A substances, running county lines. Often they come in and they're very sick, they're scared, they're distressed. And instead of responding with care and compassion, we allow our emergency departments, our resuscitation rooms to be flooded with police officers. And if, you, you know, if you're a healthcare professional and you ever walk through A&E, you'll, you'll see and, and, and appreciate how true this is. But to what end, you know, for what? This response really in a microcosm is a very literal representation of how we understand or misunderstand the concepts of safety, harm and violence. And these three concepts are really used to, that they're used to place police, prisons and, and punishment and carcerality at the center of our society. And also as Mariam Carver says, in, in our hearts, and in our minds. Um, so I kind of want to touch on those three concepts. So whose safety is the police really there to preserve? It certainly isn't the teenager who's come in stabbed. It certainly isn't the man who I saw brought in handcuffed with a hood over his head, restrained by police and security guards in the midst of a psychotic crisis. And it certainly isn't the woman of colour who's been sexually assaulted, yet in all statistical probability is going to be let down by the criminal justice system in a, in a search for any kind of meaningful accountability. Instead, as is detailed in, in Race and Health's BMJ Global Health Paper, it's the privileged among us who are recipients of this safety, a safety that's predicated on violence and harm against minoritized communities. And that really kind of begs the question, what harms are the police limiting? You know, some simple reflection tells us that not all criminalized behaviors are harmful. And of course, not all that is harmful is criminalized that it is the same communities at the sharp end of the criminal justice system uh, and of policing is, is very much by design and not by accident. And I think that brings me kind of to the last point, which is violence. There's this real obsession with violence, particularly in kind of the mainstream media, but who decides what's violent and what's not? You know, are fossil fuel corporations colonizing indigenous lands leading to generations of harm? Are they not violent? Is a state sanctioning flights full of deport, kind of deported vulnerable people um, seeking international protection. Is that not a violent act? Is, is the government or, or, or the range of governments that the colonial governments fueling and funding conflicts, displacing these very people that they're deporting, is that not violent? And I think this is something that's really central to, to, to this whole conversation and worth reflecting on. And um, shout out to Abby, who kind of highlighted and signposted Angela Davis's 1999 speech on the prison industrial complex, uh, which I'd urge you all to listen. It's on Spotify, so easily accessible. Um, so the PCSE bill serves to deepen the role of healthcare workers in policing and surveillance that we know, as we've discussed, makes people more sick, not less. As Jordan explained, the serious violence duty, uh, one of the PCSC's uh, flagship policies makes it a statutory duty to share information with the police on those at risk of serious violence, whether they fall on the victim or the perpetrator side. And in essence, they make us de facto police officers and border guards as, as healthcare professionals. It's certainly not something that we were either trained or at all want or have signed up to do. Um, trust is a sacred thing, as you all know, and it's central to meaningful, authentic patient relationships. 
even more fragile when we as healthcare workers are trying to hold space for minoritized people and patients who've been harmed by the state. Confidentiality is, of course, a core pillar of this trust and, and the serious violence duty, as you can imagine, seeks to totally obliterate this. And to, to really borrow from the prevent duty language, um, this, is a, this is very much an expansion of the pre-crime space, a means to surveil particularly black uh, young men, but also largely other racialized communities who will suffer disproportionately from this policy. I will wrap up. Um, and my last point, and I suppose my kind of call to action, as it were, is that I think, you know, ultimately resisting the bill is not enough. That's an absolute bare minimum, and even that isn't sufficient. We as healthcare professionals are already actively complicit in the violence and harm that's happening. Throughout history, medicine has been used to sanitize and legitimize state violence, whether through the creation of pseudo-biological categories that kind of undergirded in part the transatlantic uh, chattel slavery trade or that the kind of current humanitarian NGO academic industrial everything complex that cloaks and, and hides all manner of geopolitics and scheming and neocolonialism. Our own NHS underserved and as savagely uh, kind of as savaged by privatization as it may be actually often has a pretty hard time listening to minoritized communities and instead I feel anyway from the inside willfully enacts violence through its mental and physical health services, particularly onto to black and brown people, onto working class people, onto our trans and non-gender binary kin. Um, so I suppose as a, as a kind of parting remark, I, I challenge you, as I'm trying to challenge myself to do, to really confront um, the carceral and the punitive logic that resides so deeply and intrinsically within us through our socialization. As Mariam Carver tells us, cages can find people and not the conditions that facilitated their harms or the mentalities that perpetuate violence. So as people, uh, you know, for whom fostering healthy people, both little people and big people, lies at the core of what we do, we must be asking questions about these conditions that create that harm. Can we understand violence not simply as knives, as guns, but also as something the state and institutions enact, systematically minoritizing and suffocating whole communities? As Tamam Al-Ludat, uh, who uh, we, we recently met at in Race and Health and various other people held a people's health hearing um, parallel to COP26 said last week, health should be a tool for emancipation of removing the shackles, not of greater control. So let us resource communities with our time and money. Let us leverage our social and political capital to organize with groups working on the socio-political and commercial determinants of health, on mechanisms for community accountability, on transformative justice approaches. Thank you very much. And yeah, really excited to, to share this space and, and, and hand over back to, back to you guys. Thank you so much, Kavian. That was brilliant. And I really appreciate you calling attention to the long lineage of thinkers um, and writers and organizers who have preceded this work and made it possible. And also positioning healthcare workers as agents and reminding us of what power we have to resist the, the constrictions of um, our understandings of safety, like you say, or violence or harm and, and what we can define them to be and how we can then move to address them um, and enable them in terms of safety. 
thank you so much. And now we're going to move swiftly on to our next brilliant speaker, um, who's Lola Olufemi. Um, Lola Olufemi is a Black feminist writer and researcher from London. She is co-author of The Fly Girl's Guide to University, Feminism Interrupted, Disrupting Power, and Experiments in Imagining Otherwise. She's a member of Bare Minimum, an interdisciplinary anti-work arts collective, and is volunteer coordinator at the Feminist Library in South London. Lola's work focuses on the uses of the feminist imagination, its relationship to futurity, political demands, and imaginative revolutionary potential. Alongside writing, she facilitates reading groups and workshops and occasionally curates. So Lola, I'll hand over to you for your reflections now. Thank you so much, um, Sarah. And I first want to say a big thank you to the MEDAC team for inviting me to speak and to say thank you to Kavian as well for sharing those reflections. That was excellent. Um, I'm Lola, I use she, her, or they, them pronouns. Um, and I was asked to speak to the section of the briefing that's related to policing. So in the section, the issue of kind of increased police power as a response to the problem of crime and public health are clearly laid out. This part of the briefing argues that rather than uh, being a solution to social violence, policing itself poses a threat to public health precisely because the function of policing is a kind of surveillance, the movement of bodies for the purposes of extraction, control um, of our access and use of space. I think policing induces and exacerbates many forms of crisis, um, chaos and social harm, especially for black people in this country. It doesn't uh, it does nothing to kind of foster the level of care people require in local communities devastated by austerity, poor access to housing, increased rates of domestic violence, precarity, food poverty, structural racism, and so on. We know um, that policing evolves in part as abolition scholar Ruth Gilmore um, informs us through a desire to violently manage populations and to extract time. And reading this section of the briefing made me think in relation to the work you all do as public health workers, um, what an actual expansive and liberatory approach to public health could look like. What if instead of relying on the most harmful aspects of state power, which we've seen utilized again and again, whilst crime rates increase and public health funding disintegrates, what if we thought collectively about what a relational approach to public health could offer us? If coming into contact with the police if you're having a mental health crisis means that even one person ends up dead, then for me, the entire system of dealing with public health in this manner has to be abolished. Um, a kind of radical public health approach would hold that no person is dis uh, disposable. The function of policing in prisons is to make us believe that no other alternative is possible or actionable. And I, I think that's a kind of ideological sleight of hand. I think it constrains our imaginative potential, but public health, I think is fertile ground, uh, ground for rethinking how we could um, live by refusing to concede to the idea that police violence is inevitable or that it will be solved by getting rid of a few bad apples. It's not naive, I think, to try and enact a different approach. I think it means a recognition that our current public health approach um, and, and the one that is being encouraged by this bill is one that murders people. Uh, and I don't think we're asking kind of utopic questions right now. We're asking necessary ones, precisely because nothing has changed in regards to the dire state of public health and increased police power will not shift 
that landscape either. So it makes sense and is incumbent on us to begin to ask a different set of questions. Well, this relational approach, um, I think, would first require us to abandon the myth that policing in prisons do, do anything to improve public health, which we, we've heard over and over again. We know that many of the people who, who die in police custody um, also suffer from mental health problems. A relational approach would ask us to turn our attention to the social conditions that create and exacerbate all forms of health crisis. If you're a person who lives in cold, damp, overcrowded, precarious housing that's growing mold that the council is, is ignoring, it follows then that you're more likely to get sick. You're more likely maybe to suffer from depression, to develop complications related to your breathing. If you're a child with asthma who lives in one of the most polluted cities in the world, your health outcomes are obviously limited. If you're a person who's meant, um, whose uh, mental health crisis or level of pain is dismissed by health workers, or you are immediately sectioned, which is another form of violence with no regard for your own agency, then you're not receiving the level of care that is necessary to keep you alive or to allow you to flourish or to make life worth living. Uh, living. A relational approach, I think, would also ask that public health workers, instead of relying on the police and prisons um, as a kind of infrastructure, think about the ways they might begin to approach public health as a multi-pronged issue, so that public health approaches begin long before somebody enters a hospital or a GP surgery. That means, how can public health workers act in service of community modes of care? How can they resist the stipulations of the prevent duty? What skills can they offer to localize networks? What free advice can they give to people? How can they help to alleviate the social conditions that cause illness? Inside the hospital, how can they make sure people are able to advocate for themselves? How do they begin to take pain seriously? Obviously, um, what's being, a uh, what's being um, kind of put forward here is a long-term vision. Um, and often when we talk about abolitionist uh, uh, approaches, it can often feel like it requires um, uh, an approach that feels in, in many ways too small to deal with the scale of the issue at hand. But I think the work of, a radical public, uh, of radical public health workers is being bolstered by organizers on the ground making demands to state power about the end of this bill and other informal routes and practices that people utilize in their communities in order to keep themselves uh, themselves safe without relying on the police. That is to say, abandoning policing as a mode of public health also requires us to understand the violence embedded in our current system, and more importantly, to understand how the language of public health concerns are mobilized by the state in order to justify increased police power. For example, when we think of, of, of gendered violence, we don't think of how police and border guards use strip searches and stop and search as a means of bodily violation and, degra and degradation. That's a public health issue. Um, we, we don't think about how prisons themselves are spaces rife with sexual violence and instances of suicide, both public health issues. An abolitionist public health approach would ask us to conceive of responses to harm that are able to account for all of us and that won't put some of us in danger through the displacement of social care onto the police and prison so that others can maintain an illusion of protection. It pulls back, I think, the mask of the, of the carceral state, revealing how it abandons people on a mass scale and outsources their care to non-governmental uh, non organizations and charities whilst public health funding is consistently cut and whilst resources that would enable people to live expansive and joyful lives are withheld. Abolitionist approaches to public health 
ask us to recognize that the problems we seek to address require the total destruction of interlocking systems of power that make us vulnerable to harm, not a recapitulation to the most violent arms of the state that claim to protect us. To adopt this um, approach as a public health worker is to take seriously the idea that one, the world could be organized in a different way, a way that prioritizes relation and love and that makes use of the world's resources to enrich us all. Take, for example, a group of feminists who secure housing and crowdfund for a woman in the midst of a mental health crisis who is experiencing domestic violence. So she is able to leave with her children instead of calling the police or a feminist direct action group fighting to turn an empty prison into social housing. Abolitionist approaches are not merely, I think, an antidote or a solution. Rather, they emerge through an amalgamation of capacious responses to violence, um, radical political histories and genealogies, a desire for more than the limits of carcerality and the carceral state will allow. They pro uh, propose a new vision for what public health could be and what it could mean. Most importantly, they ask us to refuse the lies um, that the state tells about itself and its intentions, that it has our best interests at heart, that it maintains order, that increased police power has any positive correlation with public health or with safety. A more relational approach to public health, I think, emboldens us. It gives us the tenacity to believe that we can make the world anew in lots of big and small ways, and that our care for one another is political um, and needs to be thought of as a kind of form of resistance. Thank you all so much um, for, for listening. Thank you, Lola. That was such a rich, um, rich, rich reflection. And I know that I'm really glad that this is being recorded because I will be going back to listen. Um, but I really particularly responded to you mentioning that pu public health as fertile ground and also as a site, a kind of multi-pronged issue, right? Like something that is not singular in the ways that maybe we've thought of public health to be before, not contained to the site of the hospital, not something where you know we have one role and we do it in the same way that the police have one role and they do it. But in actuality, we yeah we need to be more relational in our, our, our approaches to public health. I really took to that. So thank you so much. Um, and yeah, we'll, we'll move on to our next speaker now, um, who is Chelsea McDonough. Um, Chelsea is a researcher, Irish traveller activist and writer. She speaks on a wide range of issues affecting gypsy and traveller people, including education, health, policy and politics. Um, and Chelsea is one of the co-founders of the Rom Belong programme, a KCL widening participation programme for gypsy, Roma and traveller peoples, and is passionate about improving opportunities for young people. So yes, without further ado, Chelsea. Uh, thank you, Sarah, and thank you to the rest of the MEDAC team. I'm going to speak primarily to the impact this bill is going to have on Gypsy Roma travel people, but I'm going to build on some of the things that were said um, by Kavian and Lola, because I think a really important point to kind of come back to is that you cannot legislate your way out of problems caused by legislation in this position because of that. And, you know, travellers are already over-policed. Something I've seen this week... Um, Something that's knocked me for six and I'm tired by, we've, I've had this conversation so many times. The healthcare system as it is, doesn't serve Gypsy Roman traveler people. We are like, we died 10 years younger than the general population. My, my grandmother, one died um, at 67 and the other had a stroke at 60. Um, and that was 10 years ago and she's never walked or talked. 
ever since were already experiencing these issues. Um, the number of people killing themselves, and I use the term killing themselves rather than suicide because, um, again, that's rooted in the carceral system, is six to seven times the general population. 11% of people die. And that's normal. I grew up with two uncles that killed themselves. Every, every week, every month, you hear a couple of other people happening. And when we're asking for policy interventions, they tell us they don't have time for that. The NHS doesn't collect data, so we don't know the scale of the issue. We know from conversations we're having that, that um, women are more likely to miscarry. You have high rates of child infant mortality. Um, all of these issues. And if you're incarcerated already in higher levels, you're not going to seek support because anybody that has experienced issues around mental health knows that the, the, the big fear is they're going to lock you up. If you have already, if you're already experiencing incarceration as a whole, why are you going to access a system that is carceral in, in, in its nature, in its delivery? And I cannot, I, can, I honestly cannot stress how tired we are. That I'm having these conversations. I know so many people are, and nothing has changed. You know, even when there are conversations, we're seeing this a lot at the moment in relation um, to the environment. There's much more conversations around the impact that's having on health. Gypsies and travellers are missing from those conversations. Sites primarily are positioned next to railways, dumps, um, or under the motorway. Um, there's one in West London, right under the Westway. Um, there's no conversations about the impact that that's having on people's lungs and people's health. It, it's not happening. And I honestly fear it never will. Um, the issues we have, often what comes up in the media is issues around encampments, um, often termed illegal, they're not that yet. This this bill means that it, it doesn't, I'm, I'm gonna build on something I think it was Lola mentioned around, or Kevin, I can't remember, someone mentioned around pre-crime, I think it's Kevin. You don't need to have committed a crime. So with the legislation they're putting forward, you only have to have the intent to reside. You don't actually have to have resided anywhere. Just the intent is enough to ban you from an area for 12 months. Um, you risk up to six months imprisonment, a two, I think it's 2,500 pound fine. Um, and the seizure, the, the, the seizing of your, your car and your trailer, which is essentially your home. If you're on the road, it's because you don't have a home already. There are not many sites public that, that are in the public ownership. Um, those that are, are already overcrowded. You have four generations living in one plot because there's nowhere else for people to go. The government have changed the planning definition. So someone like myself who's lived on the site my whole life, um, I don't count as a traveler under the government planning definition because I haven't moved. But if I move, I can't be on the council waiting list. Um, and evidently if I move anywhere right now um, with this bill, you're gonna be criminalized. You're in a catch 22 and the policy isn't working. Um, and this is intentional. No one can tell me they don't know this, it's intentional. Everything they're doing is intentional. This is not the state acting by accident, but it's the state doing what it was designed to do. And so often people go, you know, oh, it's just, it's an injustice, you know, it's, it's a, these things are one-off injustices, but they're not. We see things repeated and we see this for most racialized groups all the time. These are intentional acts. The government knows, they, they admitted it a couple of months ago, that this bill um, will disproportionately impact, uh, Black people will disproportionately impact travelers, and they're okay with that. They said, we know that's going to happen and we're okay with that. Um, and, and for me, it's the fact that people look at these issues in a silo. The issues around campments and, home, and travel homes are tied up 
in the fact that the, the most of the land is owned by a small minority of people. The issues affecting housing are affecting us all. It's just that our homes look different. And I think, you know, the, the health, the people who work in health are already acting as a frontline. It's, it's already happening. If you look at the Mental Health Act, if you look at all of this other legislation, it's already ha happening. And this is just another, it's another kind of nailing the coffin. And, you know, I know hospitals. Someone rang me a few months ago because a hospital in the north of England, um, when they had a traveler patient admitted, called in external security um, because traveler family members were there and they didn't want them in the hospital. Getting that, for us, those rituals are really important. That yes, people come in mass numbers because that person's life is very important. The first instinct of those doctors was to call in external security, to pay for external security so that people were not able to support their family. This is what we're seeing already. And I fear actually what this happens, what happens, we know that lower levels of education means that people are more susceptible to vaccine misinformation. We know this stuff, but, but nothing's changing. And for me, I, I come back to honestly, none of this is an accident. We're in this position because of policy. P and you know, often people say to me, oh, but we should introduce this, kind of go back to the Caravan Sites Act. No, that caused a problem in the beginning because it meant local authorities, authorities had to provide pitches for 15 people and had greater powers to remove everybody else. All of this stuff is already happening and it's just a cycle. And, and, and most trips and travellers aren't informed. People don't know about this bill and the ones it's going to affect are those who are already disproportionately affected. And my fear is then with the pressure then that's placed particularly on young men, that those rates of people taking their own lives is going to increase because of the pressures, the, the, the risks around incarceration. Most people, when you hear someone's gone to prison, your first fear is, is that has that person got the head for it? Will they come home? And that's before you look at some of the, the other health inequalities, you know, in terms of access to healthcare in prison, that means you're, you're already less likely to come home if something happens. Um, so yeah, just thank you. And I hope that's been helpful. Thank you so much, Chelsea. That was incredibly helpful. Um, I think the point that you're making around the kind of fundamental purpose of this, these kinds of legislations and the purpose of these roles and the, and the design of these kinds of bills and policies to continue to make Gypsy Roma and Traveller life untenable fundamentally is something that we need to address and not necessarily you know, treat it like, oh, a singular issue, but something that needs to be uprooted and really like examined. So thank you so much. Um, yeah, there's so much to reflect on and I hope we have time in the discussion to build on much of what you said. Um, our final speaker is Kelsey Mohammed. Uh, Kelsey is a feminist abolitionist organizer based in London, resisting state violence. She works to explore and build transformative justice and community-led responses to violence. And as a facilitator with grassroots collectives, she delivers workshops exploring community accountability, bystander intervention, power, and tools for campaigning and movement building. So Kelsey, I'll hand over to you. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you so much, uh, everyone who's spoken tonight and everyone who's worked on this report. Um, uh, yeah, it's, you've all 
you've all covered so much that I, I'll try not to speak too much so that we can get to the questions. Um, especially because I I'm someone who I've only got like really what I'll share with you is only like <clears throat> a sliver of kind of uh, what like you know of just I only have like this tiny bit of understanding of what uh, our friends inside prisons are actually going through because I haven't had that experience of incarceration myself but I think uh, yeah I'm here as like an organizer and an abolitionist and someone who's just really dedicated to transformative justice anywhere that I can bring those ideas to um, and I think it's really important for us all to make connections between ourselves and the prison industrial complex and the ways that it impacts all of our lives and the ways that uh, that violence like ripples through our communities especially if you're part of any kind of marginalized community um, and so yeah like I said it's really important for us to fight for abolition kind of wherever we are and taking a public health approach um, that encompasses um, uh, an abolitionist an abolitionist approach to um, of policing in prisons is just like it really is that that liberatory approach because of who is actually impacted by the prison system and I guess I want to speak a little bit about uh, that because I think in the UK we don't necessarily speak specifically about kind of the conditions of what's going on inside and and really how yeah how bad it is like in the in the UK we imprison the most people proportionately um, of all of Western Europe, um, of, of all of basically Europe except for Russia. Um, and at the moment, the government is planning to build 18,000 more prison places um, across the men's estate. Um, and then, uh, yeah, in plus like 500 places across the women's estate and secure schools for children as well. There's also plans for things like mega detention centers um and yeah expansions of current prisons and so uh we're kind of seeing all of that as like you know like touted as part of this public health approach right and part of this like cleaning up uh after covid and after brexit and there's an anticipation of a rise in crime um which is really because they're intending to put more police on the streets, which is because they're intending to build more prisons. And it's really nothing to do with actual concern for people. It's really about understanding there is gonna be a rise in homelessness. There is a rise in mental health support um, needs. There is a rise, in, gonna, a rise in domestic violence that's happened over the pandemic. There's all of these things that they're not going to like tackle through um, supporting our wellbeing. They're really trying to sweep everybody up into these new prisons. Um, and so it's really important to look at this policing bill as one of the key mechanisms they're gonna to use to fill these new prisons. Um, I think one of the things that we hear a lot on the public health approach um, to prisons is about overcrowding, right? And so it's easy to think maybe that, okay, well, if all our prisons are overcrowded, maybe what we need is more prisons, right? But actually, uh, there is nothing that really is saying that anyone who's currently in these old horrible prisons that they are going to be moved into these new prisons or there's going to be any kind of uh change in that over overcrowding it's actually just that they're putting whole new people in prison right it's they're just increasing the prison population itself um they're not spreading people out over those new prisons and what we know 
a lot of the time when they uh, create new facilities or when they make these kinds of reforms, those can be used as another way of punishing people. So uh, once you're in prison, then the idea of being put in uh, one of these newer, nicer prisons can be kind of used as a, a way to further coerce you, right? If you behave badly, then you'll have to stay in this horrible prison. If you're good, then you get to go into one of these nice prisons. It becomes like this other level of punishment kind of within that system. And what we're seeing through this policing bill is further uh, power to parole boards and further power to what they're calling, I think, responsible officers, which is uh, just kind of another type of probation, really, um, and gives more, like, yeah, these officers more power to decide to recall people back to prison, to extend curfews and further restrictions once someone is outside of prison. And what we worry about as well is the way that that can further bring in people who work in charities, people who work in different kinds of healthcare, um, uh, other kinds of support services, they get dragged into having to behave as cops, right? They have to then also be part of, okay, someone in order to, maybe they've been released from prison or maybe they've been criminalized and in order they've been given a deal that means that instead of going to prison, they have to access these certain services, but that's through this coercive mechanism that means that if they don't do it, they don't go to the appointments, they don't do these kinds of things, they're in the wrong place at the wrong time, then they are put in prison, right? So it's just used as this further coercion and then people who work in those charities, people who work in those sectors, they have to report if someone hasn't come to those appointments, right? They end up acting in that policing capacity, um, similarly to how prevent and these other kinds of mechanisms work. So it's important to kind of look at the stretch that these uh, these kinds of bills have in terms of that wider impact of how it uh, pulls more people into that prison industrial complex. Um, yeah, I think, yeah, another sort of, we're just like further, elements of this is that we know that the people who are impacted by prison, um, you know, it's not just people who are literally in prison who are impacted, um, it's people's children, it's their families, it's their communities also impacted. If you have a loss of income because one of your family members is being incarcerated, that will also have an impact on your access to health, right? So it's the ways that these things like ripple out and there's no further way that we saw this than in the COVID-19 pandemic where um, this idea of people in prison being out of sight, out of mind, obviously doesn't work because the virus, if we let that, like, as we have done, continue to run rampant around a prison, it doesn't just stay within the prison, that is increasing the amount of the virus is in the local community around those prisons as well, because it's people coming in and out who are working in those prisons who are bringing the virus in and bringing the virus out as well. And what we know that, like, I guess, there's just been a lot of lessons in terms of uh, the impact on people in prison um, and those like kind of public health lessons, which is, or just like our society's like stance on prisons, right? So because every sort of, uh, so public health England and even the prison governors at the beginning of the pandemic, uh, uh, like recommended that 4,000, at least 4,000 people be released back into the community out of our prison system in order to ease the, the spread of the virus inside. Um, and it's really rare, like it's not often that prison governors are actually trying to get people out, right? And, 
And even, even despite that, people at the top, Robert Buckland, who was head of the MOJ, and also, of course, Boris Johnson, were just like, no. And so basically they created a, a program that was gonna start releasing people, but then after an administrative error, after they'd released about six people and they accidentally released two that were the wrong ones on the list or something, they shut down the whole program. And it's really been like a trickle of one or two people like at a time as they've come up to parole that have been kind of being released during this pandemic. So they've been completely written off um, in terms of that crisis plan. And I think that really shows that prison is seen as like our priority is punishment over health in all of these ways, right? And when we talk about public health and we don't include people in prison, that's just a further element of the dehumanization and exclusion of people inside, right? Because who is the public? Why are people in prison not considered the public, right? And so if we're not centering people who are the most marginalized in our society when it comes to a public health crisis, that really shows that uh, yeah, the people at the top are really not are not here for us, right? They're here for maintaining the status quo, um, even at the cost of of yeah mass human life. Um, on a day to day level, prisons themselves are incredibly harmful to our health. Um, like I said, both inside and outside, but uh, particularly for uh, our friends inside, obviously. Like for anyone, like the NHS, <clears throat> I think they had these campaigns maybe before. COVID as well, but um, you know, they were having these campaigns about loneliness and isolation and how how badly that impacts your health and the general population. And imagining what that like huge impact is if you are literally kept in a cage, if you're denied showering, if you're denied good food, any and like exercise. During, you know, during the pandemic, people have been kept in their cells for about 23 and a half hours a day, making the choice in that half an hour whether to shower or get to see some sunlight. Um, that obviously has a huge impact on your on your health. Um, we know lots of people who have experienced chronic illnesses as a result of incarceration and continue to have uh, to experience those health impacts long after they are released. Um, and yeah, as someone has already mentioned, obviously like the mental health impacts on people incarcerated are huge. We know that someone dies in prison uh, every four days in the UK. Um, and that that uh yeah and that on top of that we have people the yeah most of the or like a huge proportion of the people who are incarcerated women's prisons are um either pregnant or have young children themselves and so obviously the the healthcare that they are provided um is lacking but healthcare basically in prisons is basically non-existent um it is something that has to get really, really bad before you will be treated and then your care is totally unconsensual, right? So they will do extreme things in order to uh, just sort something out quickly by whatever their priorities are rather than giving you full consent over your care. We know people who are taken to hospital for surgeries when they're not even told what the surgery is for in advance, these kinds of things that are really out of our horror movies, right? This idea of having that little uh, agency over your body and your care when like, you know, even by the government's rules, like you're supposed to receive uh, equivalent care within prison. That is absolutely not part of your punishment, right? So you don't even have to be an abolitionist to, to have a problem with that. And yet prisons themselves are just not set up to ever provide the same care, the same uh, provisions that you would have if you were living your free life, right? Um, and so, 
yeah, this is not about looking for reforms of that system and better healthcare within, but really looking at how we take a proactive approach to healthcare that means that people don't end up in prison in the first place. Um, and that when we, yeah, really think about the ways that healthcare, our approach to healthcare kind of mimics the criminal justice system in that way of waiting for people to get sick, right? Waiting for things to get bad so that people then go seek help. We wait for harm to happen and then we try to punish someone in the criminal justice system. And really an abolitionist approach is holistic and it is about looking to create uh, safety and create well-being and all of these things in a proactive way. So of course that is looking at working less hours, that is looking at how we decrease stress in our lives, that is looking at having secure housing, that is looking at accessibility in all of these different ways. Um, and in the immediate term, um, in terms of what we're doing to do this is, is about decarceration. As I said, the government was really not about to let 4,000 people out. Um, and if they were, it's all gonna be under the guise of like, uh, yeah, thank you Kavian for, for drawing attention to the idea of violent versus non-violent. Like plenty of people who are in prison for supposedly violent offenses are in there for things like, well, either defending themselves against someone who was violent towards them or also things like, um, uh, what's the word, like assaulting a police officer, which is often what happens when someone fights back because they're being arrested, because they don't understand why they're being arrested, because they are being assaulted by a police officer first, all of these things, they're being unjustly searched, all of that, but a violent offence can be all of these kinds of things that really uh, are skewing our understanding of, of what violence is in the first place within a within an incredibly violent system. And so when we look at decarceration, we're looking at just trying to build as much of a case as possible at the moment for people who are coming up to parole. We try to build that through like a, a health perspective as well in terms of like supporting people to uh, have things like housing lined up, things like um, addiction support lined up, uh, yeah, access to services, all of these kinds of things, trying to increase their chance of of, get, of being able to get out and uh, for there to be sort of like mutual aid networks to support them. Um, and yeah, just trying to, to take that proactive approach to, to enable us to, to not have to deal with prisons in the first place is kind of, is kind of the main things at the moment. I'm gonna stop there. Um, but uh, yeah, thank you. Thank you so much, Kelsey. Um, yeah, that was brilliant. And I think we don't talk nearly enough about how people in prison are, are kind of discarded entirely when we talk about access to healthcare and access to services, um, even if we do talk about vulnerable populations and marginalized people. Um, and I think, yeah, you're drawing attention to what preventative, what a preventative approach can actually like show us is possible for thinking through healthcare as well. Like not just necessarily, okay, we're gonna prevent people getting into prison, but we're going to prevent them from getting into this, the conditions people have mentioned before, um, under which they become sick and under which we you know, relegate them to um, a kind of space where they, they don't seem deserving, quote unquote, of care. Um, that's fantastic. Thank you so much, everyone, for all of your contributions. I think that really just brought out all of the, all of the fantastic points that are made in the report itself, um, but also, yeah, gave us lots to explore in the discussion, which we're now moving on to. Um, so a few of you have sent in questions. Um, a couple of them I think I can answer quite quickly before we open up to the, to the whole group of speakers. Um, one question posed, 
um, by Richard around what we can do to put things right. Um, I think in terms of con con consuming a lot of the information that has been shared today, I recognize and I empathize that it is quite difficult to process immediately, um, but that's the purpose of the report. Um, I do recommend everyone go away and, and give it a read. Um, take your time with it, discuss it with people around you in your workplace, in your communities. Um, and also this will be up online as well. So as a resource for us to continue thinking through a lot of the hard and long-term questions that are being posed today, but that we can answer together. Um, and then another question posed was around the bill itself. So does the bill also require other professionals to collaborate with the police where serious violence is an issue, um, e.g. lawyers, banks, and schools? Um, from my understanding, the bill itself proposes that the serious violence duty um, will be something that not only healthcare professionals are required to share information with the police or work more collaboratively with the police, this will stretch across public services. So people working in local authorities have, have raised their voices about in, in, um, in opposition to the bill because of this. Um, people working in a range of public services and social workers as well. So it does affect a broad range of workers, not just healthcare workers. Um, and yeah, that is important to bear in mind. I think our resistance, although it should be targeted to public health and thinking through a public health approach to redressing a lot of the harms um, that the bill proposes and that beyond the bill exist in society, um, I think it does also show how there are connections to be made across sectors, across fields, across roles in public life, which um, the police and the bill intend to kind of co-opt and use as different landscapes to continue doing its work. Um, Okay, and now we have a few questions. We have about four questions that have been posed. And please, if you do have any more, we've opened up the chat as TJ has just said. So please feel free to pop them in there. Um, but for our speakers, I'll start off with um, the very first question we had from Mashal, um, who said, what lessons, if any, have we learned from the Mental Health Act and its bringing together of police and healthcare that we can apply to the police bill and how do we oppose it? So I think that was an important one for the healthcare professionals among us um, to potentially think through and offer a, um, a response to, if anyone wants to chime in. I think, uh, yeah, I can jump in and then leave some space for others. Um, I, I guess that, uh, <laughs> Um, I guess I'm going to leave space for, for others who might be closer to organising on the ground, who might know about um, where pockets of resistance are to this with regards to kind of alternative spaces and circles to explore uh, racialized, racialized mental health that, that um, doesn't involve kind of carcerality, the police, the Mental Health Act, but in direct response to the question, I, I, I don't think that, that, you know, the lesson we've learned is that the that police are incredibly violent and harmful in, in stepping into the mental health space and that there, there's a mutually reinforcing relationship between the way that mental health is conceptualized and mental health care is, is, is delivered and the role of the police within it. I think there's, some there's a statistic I read, something like 40% of, um, uh, of black people come to 
or, or uh, there's, a, there's a significant pro proportion of kind of racialized and black people who come to mental health services through carceral routes. So like via the prison or via police for, for criminalized behaviors who, who are then like, oh, actually they enter the kind of the mental health system, which I think is like absolutely horrific and highlights how we understand, you know, mental health of racialized communities, particularly the black community. And I, I think that, you know, there is this, that, yeah, a complete misunderstanding. And there is, there, there are huge numbers of kind of deaths in custody um, and deaths through uh, use of, um, I guess, like disproportionate levels of restraint against uh, people, particularly from the black community. And, and I don't know, I think, you know, that it speaks for itself in, in terms of <laughs> the fact that that's totally, you know, it's not fit for purpose at all for the police to be involved in any way. And if anything, it's just total fuel and, and proof that, that it doesn't make any sense for, for the police to have any role in mental health care or health care at all. Thanks, Gavian. Did any other speaker want to respond to that point or should I ask the next question? Oh, Wendell, go for it. It's just a really small thing but you know what the, what it made me think about is about um about the the sort of possibility of parallel systems about about um and this is not just it made me think about the samaritans versus nhs care um and you know not saying that the samaritans is the kind of answer to everything but they're able to operate and you know um under a really different model um, that is not, um, to my knowledge, all my kind of engagement with them, they they don't engage with, in a kind of carceral way. They don't attempt to kind of use the Mental Health Act. They engage with people in a really different way. And somehow that they're kind of able to do that. Um, you know, there's all kinds of stuff about respectability that might be kind of going on there. But but I think um, for me that that that's been allowed to to persist gives me a certain kind of hope about about a possibility of having other setting up other ways of supporting each other uh, um, uh, with all of these kinds of issues. Absolutely, yeah. There's been there have been many ways that have been modelled, I think, and it's important for us to <clears throat> use those as a as a reminder that we don't have to rely on punitive and carceral responses to mental health problems specifically, but all social problems broadly. Kelsey, were you going to make a point too? I guess I was just going to say in terms of the policing bill that in the same way that, yeah, it's a similar thing in terms of bringing these different kind of sectors together and bringing those elements of policing like into these other systems of care. And so there is like a lot to learn in terms of like seeing that legacy because that is something that has happened a lot, particularly when it comes to uh, criminalized women. I know there was uh, points in the States where they have tried to like just replace women's prisons with men women's mental health hospitals and things like that. And so similarly with the policing bill and the different kinds of expansions that we're seeing where we're seeing things come under like different kinds of names it's like a lesson in like how we be vigilant and how we need to like build solidarity across these things and how it really doesn't serve us to create those divisions of like there's vulnerable people and there's criminals because that label of criminal will move to always sit on those marginalized people regardless of what their actions actually are right because 
they will be like in the same way that migrants like if we say like oh some of us aren't criminals like they will just create a prison that's for foreign nationals specifically and these kinds of things like that the idea of criminality will kind of move for that target regardless and so we have to be really careful about how we yeah how we strategize and how we move together I think. Absolutely. Yeah. The idea that criminality is a construction and so like can be expanded and changed and moved depending on the intention of whoever wields that that word, that concept. Um, cool. So we have a couple more questions, two of which I'm going to combine, actually. Um, a question from Abby, who said, as someone who works in local public health, there's still a lot of propaganda locally and police have a seat at the table in health and well-being boards. How do we mobilize to remove police from these spaces and make these spaces more safe? And I'm just going to add on to that question, um, a question that um, Kriti had around how they've often encountered hostility from managers, so bed managers, overseas visitors, managers in A&E <clears throat> while working as a junior doctor themselves. Um, these managers who, you know, when questioning our complicity in the carceral system, um, we're thinking through their role because um, they felt that their questioning, questioning their jobs and their roles, um, the fact that they feel as though their jobs are enmeshed with the securitization and health um, is distressing in and of itself. But could, yeah, could any of the speakers advise on how to handle the, this kind of hostility within clinical spaces, um, maybe from people, managers, people in roles who maybe align themselves more um, and are more complicit in, in carceral systems. Um, yeah, so question on propaganda and question on people in um, healthcare settings who align themselves with carceral systems. I can um, try and answer this first. I guess this question makes me think mainly about how we're all like enmeshed in kind of harmful systems. And so what strategies and um, kind of forms and modes of resistance can we enact from the places that we're in? And I think in, I guess in my experience in, in thinking about these things with other people, it's, it's about, um, this question of uh, allegiance, whether you understand and see yourself as um, uh, having an allegiance to the institution that you're working in, or whether you understand that you are, you know, enmeshed in this very violent system, and your job at every kind of point is to use every kind of method and power at your disposal to help people, whether that's like, even something as small as pointing out propaganda and being like, isn't it really strange that this is our response to public health, or, you know, within reason doing things that your bosses don't want you to do, right? It's about um, what level of disobedience are you ready to like take on in terms of, um, because I think that that's one of the main ways that you bring and embed kind of resistance into a space. I think people think about resistance as like um, big major events. And I don't necessarily think that that's true, especially when you're being introduced to something as big as abolitionist approaches to public health. That's not, you're committing yourself to a lifelong struggle, right? And it's gonna take a lot out of you. So I guess my advice is like, think strategically about where you can make critical interventions and how you might be able to mobilize the other people that you work with to kind of undo, as has been said before, 
the distinction between um, you know criminal non-criminal or to, to really question the ways that um, the government encourages us to think about people who are going through mental um, a mental health crisis as unmoored from their social conditions there are lots of ways um, that yeah that you can intervene and I think that often these questions come from a, 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 a from a place of despair, really, when you when you are you know um, uh, presented with the scale of the problem, but understand that this this is being collectively worked on from lots of different angles, and so yeah, strategy is important, and you you don't need to have reams and reams of experience to begin to strategize, right? Like that's that's an important thing. I would probably second that. I don't think it's about like massive abolitionist acts, but like every everyday acts of abolition. So the really small things we're thinking about, like Lola said, Lola said, even just the small things, who are you calling in that first instance? What tones you're taking? Are you having those ad hoc conversations with the police when they come in? Are you step, are you saying, no, actually that's not a conversation I should be having with you? It doesn't have to be really big things but I think it's it's starting with some of the basics and then moving up because those around you will then hopefully follow suit if enough of a precedent is set. And yeah I think it's like it's definitely doing your research as to exactly what they are allowed to do in certain spaces and what rights the what like what the laws actually are because I think often with these positions of authority like we know that the police take the piss and that they they will like take advantage of their position of authority right but we often also like fall for it and so with things like um I remember with uh the whole um the thing around like sexual violence cases and like handing over data of survivors like there are definitely people who already like just because if they are a social worker or someone and they just get a call from the police and they're just like hey would you send me this file even when that wasn't actually legal people would do that because they're just like well the police are asking like surely they must need it and so to actually like a like know your rights in the first place because even that in itself is often resistance like the police don't like it when you say actually I know you're not allowed to do this like that in itself like challenges them and that is important to like start to like build like some accountability and then an another part of that which like I haven't done this in like a healthcare setting but I've done this around like um yeah when I whenever I've been able to get into rooms to talk about things like bystander intervention and stuff like that and if they do invite like if you if you can't get the police out of the room for the meeting then what you can try to do is drown them out right and so to do your best to have lots of other options ready and just like be presenting those alternatives as best that you can so that there is no space for the police like the increased policing right and so often I've, I've been known to just be like you know because the police will come in and they'll their first thing will be like okay we'll bring more officers we will you know bring more police presence that's always their response right like higher higher amounts of policing and just being like well that sounds like a lot more work for you 
the things that we have come up with are these kinds of things. You don't even have to worry about it then. And just bringing up, like talking to everybody else in the room about all these other things that you can do is like, cause that's what abolition is, right? It's about like abundance and it's about us having options and being creative. And that is what we have on our side. So when you bring in all of those things into those spaces, if you have access to those spaces, then it's also up to you to be showing those alternatives and creating less of those avenues towards the police. Amazing. Kav, did you wanna? Super, super briefly. Um, I guess just on the, the second point, the second question, just because it was quite specific about a &E, um, I guess one is like to hold that it's, it's really difficult and I really resonate with, I can't remember who said it so beautifully, but they're like, it's about small acts of like everyday resistance, right? That, that kind of build the broader abolitionist movement. Um, I think it's like knowing your allies um, within the space that you're working uh, knowing uh, in the past I've, I've like stalled discharging a patient until shift change to like try and get someone else on it's a bit of a roll of the dice because they could be worse but um but that that's been helpful in the past uh, and also really um resonate with what Kelsey said around like knowing you know like you know you, you can beat them at their own game to some extent because they do the police do take the piss and actually you can you know as healthcare professionals this is it, it's your space right they're entering your your being like as healthcare professionals plus patients collective space it's not the police's space and so saying actually do you step out i want to have a confidential consultation with with this with my patient right it's a, it's a doctor patient or, or healthcare professional patient relationship it's not, with nothing to do with the police in that context you have no forensic role at all to play as a doctor um and if anything like you have more of a role as a patient advocate rather than like anything else so i think re reflecting on those things is really important but but also it's you know it, it, and i guess like not as a not as a kind of cop out but to start a conversation like a, a, a real and radical conversation within your department around like what is the role of the police in delivering healthcare and in health they are doing more harm than good um and 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 the very last thing sorry that i want to quickly pick up on is chelsea mentioned like the calling in security um a lot and i i guess i i really there's something i want to mention earlier but i really want to reflect on that as a way of understanding how much carcerality carceral logic lives in healthcare professionals hearts and minds that like the default response is to call security who, who play the same punitive and and carceral role as, as police officers do it's 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 like relatively semantic it doesn't really matter who it is and, and I think really challenging that and their, their role. And, and also like, they are often minoritized people who are like on horrible crap contracts and like totally like non, might not be unionized and outsourced and all this crap. And they're just being used as pawns of this to enact state violence. Actually, you, there's like good allyship to be built with them as well, because they're often legends and and actually you can kind of have a, a discourse with them i think so those are the things that, that leapt to mind just as practical steps i think just speaking from the clinical space i just want to echo what Carvian said um really well and just that finding that tension i think is recognizing that that is showing that you are meeting a point of resistance and it's important that um, 
when you find that hostility, you recognize what is happening and that it, that is difficult as well. Um, the things I've thought about are kind of handling that hostility by kind of exemplifying different attitudes. So challenging the narratives that those other staff members are using to allow them to do the things which they are doing um, and bring the person who is kind of victim of that um, into a different frame. So um, almost allowing empathy to happen by challenging the narrative that is being put across. Um, so one thing I personally do is trying to reframe um, someone who's kind of being criminalized and using kind of the structures we have such as medical documentation to kind of note factors that indicate pain and distress, fear and vulnerability that they have been subjected, subjected to rather than whatever they are being labeled as. Um, and then just, yeah, echoing the thing Carvian said about finding allies. So one example I have is a kind of punitive approach is being used to someone who um, had a learning disability and was distressed, but kind of uh, um, exhibiting some kind of uh, what, what my colleagues would call difficult behavior. Um, and so I found the nurse who had kind of personal experience of um, family members with a learning disability and she stood with me on that and kind of resisted what was happening with me and that situation turned from one where the person was being physically restrained to um, her kind of kind of showing real care and um, engaging with that person in a completely different way and then the last thing I'll say is just I think as has already been said that that tension that hostility I think is a symptom of the issues we've been talking about tonight and that we are both complicit but also our hands are tied and that's the very reason we want to engage in this conversation about abolition. Thank you so much Becca and Cam and everyone for your contributions so far. Um, I realize we have three minutes left so I'm trying to think of um, the best way to kind of close. We've had a couple of questions um, around maybe potentially what the, the role of the healthcare worker <clears throat> could be in collaboration with or like trying to work against the legal system. Um, so one person posed a question specifically to um, you, Chelsea, um, and said, Chelsea pointed out that you cannot legislate your way out of problems caused by legislation. You can't litigate your way out of it either. But do the experts with medical expertise in particular see their voices being used in legal negotiations with, with authorities to echo what they've said today about carcerality harming health? Um, because for all the rightfully expressed fear of these authoritarian proposals, there is existing legislation like the CARE Act that purports to holistically address need. So I guess it's around, um, and it comes back to maybe what you said already around it being a multi-pronged approach, like big and small actions, um, thinking about what is most strategic, um, not to answer the question myself, but if anyone had uh, any reflections to, to say in terms of that question of what the, the healthcare worker, I guess, can do in response to and in immediate, I guess, response to um, the urgent kind of situations that, that, that may need a, a legal voice or a voice in a legal space um, or that kind of engagement and how to engage in those spaces too. If no one has anything else to add, I can just say, yeah, reiterating what we said already, I think it is a strategic thing. Um, it's recognizing uh, that you need to think critically about how your contribution in that space is gonna be used 
because it can be misused and will a lot of the time purposely be misused. Um, and so being understanding that your engagement with maybe something that earnestly is interested in the protection of um, a patient or a person in a situation that is, you know, um, not great for their health and thinking about how you can do that, maybe avoiding systems that have historically and systematically been designed and fundamentally like rooted in um, harm towards them and their communities. So if there are ways that you can rally people who are more maybe experts in that area, who have experience working in legal spaces, but maybe utilizing your expertise for, for the most, um, uh, for the best outcome for that person in that moment, you know, whilst we're working towards grand abolition, um, I think is probably what I would say. Um, just before we wrap up and show our final, final slide, um, do any of the speakers have any final contributions that they would like to share with the space, maybe feedback from any other points that have been outlined or final thoughts for our audience today? I feel like, um, yeah, maybe a big takeaway from this is like um, the, the notion of refusing to comply. I think that that's like an incredibly important thing. And also with maybe that last question, I was thinking about how we can be strategic with the law, but the law also has a limit, just like, you know, a, a great deal of other kind of like political strategies, right? So I think our aim is to understand that when law begins to fail us or when legislation begins to, um, to, to fail us, even though it may give us roots here and there, that our project is uh, much bigger. And, and needs to be extended beyond um, those kind of limiting frames. To not forget that, I think, is a crucial thing. Yeah, I think that's a brilliant point to end on, you know, to think beyond and to think for what our actual goals are um, in service of the communities and the individuals that we care about. Um, perfect. So Thank you so much, finally, to all of our speakers. I think it's been an incredible event. And thank you so much to Rebecca, Monza, um, and Jordan as well for giving a really brilliant overview of the report. Please do go away and have a read of it. Um, please do go and explore the work of all of our four guest speakers here. who have, as you can tell, an extensive <laughs> level of knowledge around all of these areas. Um, but finally, yes, uh, PJ, if you could share the final slide. We've had a few questions around what kind of kinds of resources exist around abolitionist education and what spaces people can come to in order to continue organizing and continue doing this kind of work um, to make sure that our healthcare spaces remain committed to healthcare and not ones that continue to perpetuate harm. So we'll leave this up um, for you to have a look at, to screenshot. Um, and also at the end of the report itself, there is a final big reading list of resources too. So that's even more incentive to go and give it a read as well. Um, thank you so much, everyone, and have a great evening.